Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. We are taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming for another special guest episode today. This is the sixth episode in a series where I converse with classicists about either books or articles that they have published, their current research interests, or just unique classes and topics that they are teaching and exploring further. In today's special guest episode, I am joined by Dr. Liz Gloyne, Senior Lecturer at Royal Holloway, University of London in the United Kingdom. Her primary teaching and research areas focus on the intersections between Roman social history, Latin literature, and ancient philosophy, particularly Seneca the Younger and his approach to Stoicism and the family unit. This research led her to publish her book, The Ethics of the Family in Seneca. But Dr. Gloin also has a strong interest in classical reception, particularly the history of women as professional academic classicists in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, as well as the classics and popular media, such as film, television, and young adult fiction. It's that last bit that will be the focus of today's episode, as Dr. Gloin and I discuss her forthcoming book titled Tracking Classical Monsters in Popular Culture. This work is the first in-depth study on classical reception and monsters in Anglo-American popular culture from the 1950s to the present day. Throughout the book, she reveals the trends behind how we have used the monsters and develops a broad theory of the ancient monster and its life after antiquity, investigating its relation to gender, genre, and space to explore what it is that keeps drawing us back to these mythical beasts and why they have remained such a powerful presence in our shared cultural imagination. Specifically, her book takes us through a comprehensive tour of monsters on film and television, from the much-loved creations of Ray Harryhausen in Clash of the Titans, to the monster of the week in Hercules' The Legendary Journeys, before examining in detail the post-classical afterlives of the two most popular monsters, the Medusa and the Minotaur. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Liz Gloin. So I'm joined now with Liz Gloin from Royal Holloway. We're going to talk about her new book, Tracking Classical Monsters and Popular Culture. Thanks for joining me, Liz. Hi, lovely to be here. We're going to start out with uh, basically what I ask everybody, just how you got to classics and what was your inspiration for the book that you just wrote, if it was part of your PhD thesis or the inspiration that brought that book about. Okay, so I got into classics. I mean, we have at home the Usborne Picture Book of History or something like that. And it was sort of one of these books that had a two page spread for various historical periods, you know, all the way up to like Second World War, 18th century France, all that kind of stuff. But apparently, I would always go back to the two pages that were about Greece and the two pages that were about Rome. They were the ones that I would always go back to. So I clearly always, something had always got me. And then in the UK system, I was lucky enough to go to a secondary school sort of at about age 11, where I was able to take Latin as a language, which I was able to start at the age of 12. Um, so was able to actually learn Latin that young. And obviously, if you've got the bug, you, you just keep going. So it got <laughs> to the stage of, for us, when we sort of are thinking about what we're going to do, we, we, we do our GCSEs, we do our A-levels, and then we think about what we're going to specialise in at university. So the difference with us is that we, we come in already knowing what our majors are going to be. So whereas when you go to college in the States, you're picking your major, you're taking some classes, you're, you're, just, you're finding out what you want to do. People go into the UK university system knowing this is the degree I'm doing. So you've got to make those choices at sort of 16, sort of 17. And, you know, it's a big choice. And mine was kind of a toss up between, well, am I going to do English literature 
why am I going to do a classics degree? And it was close, but classics won. And then did the degree, did the master's, did the PhD. Here I am. <laughs> but it's, it's, always, it's always been this thread that, that's always been there and has always been running through my life of, of something that I think is, is really interesting. And, you know, even as you get better at thinking of difficult questions to ask about that thing you find really interesting, I've never found it's got any less interesting for that. So it's sort of a lifelong love, I suppose. And it just keeps on going. As for the book, so I did my PhD in the States. And while I was in my last year there, there was a conference was organised by somebody I knew in the UK around Ray Harryhausen and his films. And I looked at this and I'll be back in the UK when this happens. And how can I not put an abstract in for a Harryhausen conference? Like, how? How can I not do this? (laughs) I thought, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to sit down and watch the films, aren't I? So I sat down. And I watched the Ray Harryhausen Clash of the Titans film. Was that the first time you watched it? No, we had that film on VHS. And a funny thing happened on the way to the forum and Jason and the Argonauts. That was my wet Monday bank holiday afternoons when I was a kid, right? Those (laughs) those were well-worn. That Tron, the original Tron, date myself here. So it was a film I really knew intimately and really loved. When you're doing the equivalent of college applications in the UK now, People, when they're writing now, say things like, I really got into classics because of Percy Jackson. If you ask people sort of of my vintage and a bit older, people will say it was Ray Harryhausen that got me because they were films we watched when we were so young and they caught us in interesting ways. They were gateways into this world of myth and wonder and stuff. So I thought, I've got to put an abstract in for this. And I sat down and I rewatched Clash of the Titans and I found myself not paying so much attention to what was going on with the story because it's the story. But it was really interesting where the monsters were. It was really interesting where the battles were happening, where the conflict was, what kind of conflict there was. And there was sort of a whole thing about the monstrous and water and the feminine and stuff. And that eventually turned into an article. But while I was writing that article, I found myself realising I couldn't find the book I wanted to read. The book I wanted to read was explaining what was going on, what was the game with, Classical Monsters in Classical Reception. So I'm sure your listeners know this. Classical Reception is the the study of what post-classical cultures do with material from the ancient world. How do they change it? How do they alter it? What exciting things do they do with it? And I found myself thinking, well, surely somebody has thought about the monsters. Somebody must have thought about the monsters. And when I went to do the reading, all I could find was stuff about the heroes. And I started to get a bit cross. (laughs) <laughs> My research projects always start with me getting a bit cross. And I started to get quite frustrated because I'd sort of be reading all of these things about, you know, all of these other kinds of aspects of what was going on in the films and, 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 and the monsters just never featured. They were never talked about. And I found myself thinking, why is there not a book about this? Why has nobody sat down and thought about what is going on? with the way that the modern world uses these kinds of monsters. Because, I mean, you can't sit down and and open sort of a a video game, a film, a television programme. You know, the allusions to these things are everywhere. I mean, think about Assassin's Creed Odyssey. You know, stuffed full of classical monsters, right? And it would be utterly dull if they weren't there. (laughs) But, you know, so it's not as if they've gone away. It's not as if they've sort of been frozen somehow and they're not still being used and still being played with but it was as if they were invisible it was as if nobody could see them and all they could see was the hero 
And as I say, that got quite cross when I realised that was what was happening. So when I sort of was thinking about this, I thought, right, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write that book. And that is what Tracking Classical Monsters in Popular Culture is. That is the book about what is going on with these monsters. You focus on film and TVs and books, right? Not like video games. Yeah, I'm not a gamer. <laughs> the thing with inception stuff is you have to do what you love. Not a gamer. You no, know, I'm not a gamer. I have friends who are gamers, and I hope this like creates the space for them to go and write the bits about that kind of stuff. And I'm sure they will. But you know, you kind of have to recognize when you're doing something that's so outside your lane, it's just going to go badly wrong. And, and me trying to be like competent about computer gaming would, <laughs> yeah. I'm not much of a gamer myself, but I actually bought a PlayStation 4 this past November <laughs> when Assassin's Creed Odyssey came out just to play that game. And it's incredibly addictive. But like it was the only reason that I bought the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think other than playing that series, I'm going to get back into gaming. But I know tons of people who got into classics from playing like the Rome Total War series or people are visual learners. So like you with films and TVs, but other people are video games. Well, exactly. And it's so important that this stuff is there to say, hi, here's the ancient world. When I was teaching a class at Rutgers Newark, was teaching a Roman social history class and I had someone in the class who because of the Rome Total War or sort of another one of the battlefield strategy games knew far more about Sulla's reforms of the army because apparently this was like a key plot point in understanding and, and, and as far as I could tell a pretty pretty accurate understanding of it as well far more than I ever had that he'd, he'd sort of picked up because it was sort of scaffolded in as a critical bit of this game that he was into and that kind of thing is brilliant you know, it's a fantastic way to get people into engaging with the ancient world. Mm -hmm. And with modern technology in, say, 2019, I see tons of really great YouTube videos where they just go into battle sequences. And it's like, man, if I was an undergrad right now, I could like visualize what was going on really well because of, you know, these people making these films that are like based on these video, like basically like graphics that you would see in these video games and these type of styles. And it's like it's a very good learning tool and a very good promotional tool. But that's not what your book's about. <laughs> it kind of is in some ways, because actually one of the things that I feel quite quite strongly about, just because it's popular culture doesn't mean that it's less important, precisely because so many people come to the classics because of it. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what gets people's interest up. This is what makes them think, yes, this subject is for me. And that's really important. Mm -hmm. So like I didn't get into classics until I got to college and I didn't know anything about Latin or Greek or any of that. Um, and it wasn't until I watched the movie 300 when I was in college that I actually got into yeah, the ancient world. Yeah. It has all of its problems. Yeah. And at the time, I didn't know, but it led me to read Herodotus to take a class, to take a myth class. And so for that reason, Troy and 300 and gladiator very nostalgic even though there are a lot of things wrong with it i always get into like tuffles with people but it's like i see people all the time critiquing what they got wrong in these movies and i was like well that's not really the point of it because you're not the intended audience like you're the expert in that field it's intended for people who are unfamiliar with it to engage with it and you know hopefully gain a love for classics or the classical world and inspire something that wasn't inspired before or wasn't there before. And equally, it's less about getting it wrong and more about what the changes that somebody has chosen to make or a film has made or the differences that they have, what that tells us about what the receiving culture, to use the jargon, like the culture making 
the new thing what they actually think the classics is for. It's true. Because, I mean, as you know, I mean, 300 has got the huge problem that it's got the whole East versus West binary polarised, not terribly great, let's get boycotted by Iran kind of thing. And that in itself is not about getting it wrong, but it's a really interesting use of classical culture to express that anxiety about that whole foundational false myth about sort of um, the East and the West and what they're meant to be like, you know. And when I first watched that until maybe like even a half a decade ago, watching 300 never really crossed my mind that it's like, oh, it's this East versus West narrative. It's like, I just thought it was this over the top Spartan versus Persian type of movie that really got me into the, oh, I want to go learn about the Persian Wars now. And I have a feeling that a lot of people that are coming to that the first time don't really get that backstory, which, and you know, it's problematic, as you said. And now that I know a lot of it, it's like, well, okay, but it still hasn't ruined it for me because it's nostalgia more than anything. It doesn't have to ruin it for you, as I say, just because what's that wonderful, like, you know, all your faves are problematic. The difficulty is if you deny that it's problematic and then carry on as if there isn't an issue there. And that kind of idea of levels as well is, you know, there's a level that you get as having the background that you didn't have the first time you had the exposure. I think that's true of of all of the case studies I talk about in the book, actually, because there's a lot of close reading, a lot of analysis, a lot of thinking through what's going on. I mean, nobody sat down and really watched through Hercules, the legendary journeys and sort of strategically thought through what they were doing, I think. And very few viewers sort of sat down and thought, uh, what precisely are they trying to say here? You know, it's a, it, the analytic viewing mode is a very different kind of mode, but it's no less enjoyable for that. It doesn't make it any less fun to watch this stuff even if you then sit back and go, okay, so with my critical eyes, what am I seeing? What's going on? So you're saying you enjoy Kevin Sorbo less when you're trying to analyze what he's doing and the role that he has instead of just watching him. Oh, I don't know. I do still enjoy analyzing Kevin Sorbo. Oh, what a sentence. Um, (laughs) But it's a different kind of enjoyment, that kind of intellectual picking apart and that understanding and that thematic analysis and all that kind of thing. It's a different kind of enjoyment to, frankly sitting down and watching Hercules the Legendary Journeys and going, this is just fun. <laughs> this is just anachronistic, enjoyable, cheesy, puntastic fun. Which is not to say that when I spent last summer basically sitting in my front room watching a lot, <laughs> my other half said to me, can you not just fast forward through them and watch them at like double speed or something? And I was like, no, that's missing the point. But <laughs> it's not to say that, you know, in those moments there weren't bits, you know, where you do tune out and sort of just be enjoying it rather than sort of going, aha, this is an interesting thing about which I need to make notes. But yeah, I mean, they are two kinds of different modes of viewing. And I don't think one cancels out the other. You know, you don't stop taking that, as you say, that pleasure in something just because you can also see it through those analytic lenses and think about it in a different kind of way. So when you were watching some of these films that you're watching, had you already seen every single one of them that you incorporated in the book and read them? Or did you come across a lot of new material, TV shows, films, books that you came to for the very first time? Yeah, there was quite a lot of finding new stuff. Obviously, there were some bold favourites in there, um, things that I'd seen before, things I'd seen when they first come out, that kind of thing, especially since there was sort of that big burst at the start of the 2000s from the gladiator effect, as it were. I'd seen sort of a lot of the kind of the big hero stuff, sometimes in the cinema, 
actually, I have to say that my other half will now no longer go to the cinema with me to watch classically themed things after we went to see Immortals. <laughs> uh, for those of you who haven't seen Immortals, it's a trip. <laughs> so then I'm not going to go with you to go and do research anymore. You can go and do it on your own time. And funnily enough, the only exception he's made to that since has been going to see Dwayne the Rock Johnson in the Hercules one from a couple of years ago, um, which was very good. Mainly because Dwayne Johnson is very aware of his own tongue-in-cheekness and wears it very well in that film. <laughs> so I haven't seen that one yet. So he played a good Hercules? Like he was a good embodiment of Hercules? I think it depends what you're expecting in terms of a fantastic Hercules, but he did a very good job of sort of balancing the various elements within sort of the bigger framework the film set up. And yeah, it was good fun. And the dialogue is very cheesy and there's Ian McShane eating the scenery. (laughs) And I mean, you know, what more do you want? I actually hadn't watched the original Clash of the Titans until a few years ago. And I watched the remake before I watched the original I didn't enjoy the Harryhausen one as much. I hadn't watched it when I was younger. Yeah, these kinds of things. It's really interesting that we're now at the stage where we have got people who have seen the remake Clash first. And there are so many jokes in remake Clash that are all about the fact that remake Clash is not original Clash, Mm -hmm. including around monsters, actually. But I have to say that I find Remake Clash, I saw Remake Clash in the cinema in New York, actually, which was an interesting experience. It was quite an empty cinema. But (laughs) I really think it's sort of actually a less interesting film than the sequel because it spends so much of its time trying not to be Clash, the original Clash. It's real anxiety issues and it can't get over them is my feeling. Whereas uh, Wrath of the Titans, the sequel, is able to kind of shrug that off a bit And it's just more thematically interesting and it's more narratively cohesive, which is nice if you like that sort of thing in your films. But yeah, it's really interesting how coming from the position of having obviously known the original all along, that really shaped my experience of watching the remake was the the, the huge anxiety about we're not doing a remake, honest. Which, of course, somebody coming to it fresh for the first time would have no context for reading that as a thing. And indeed, no reason necessarily to search out the original Clash, or even to know that it exists, which of course makes some of the jokes absolutely incomprehensible. I actually have never seen Xena Warrior Princess. <gasps> I know, I know. Well, in fairness, I make that noise. I have also still not seen all of Xena Warrior Princess. I was sort of the generation that was just getting Sky in the UK when this stuff was screening for the first time. The same for Hercules, actually. I had a very disrupted viewing experience because you'd like come home, you'd do your homework, you'd turn the television on, whatever episode was on, you'd watch it. So there are these narrative arcs built through. There are these stories that it really helps to know are going on. But, you know, that was never my watching experience, was never watching the story. And so I've got sort of weird clips and bobs and bits and pieces from various episodes and the same with Hercules. So actually sitting down and watching all the way through to get the huge narrative arc of the Hercules series was a real treat. And I will make a confession. I have still not done the same for Xena. I'm kind of similar. I didn't really get into classics until college. But I mean, like, I've passingly seen myth stuff as a kid. Yeah. Like, I mean, I watched Disney's Hercules. I was a kid. I came out in the 90s. I watched that. I, I saw Xena and Hercules, The Legendary Journey. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was on the TV. I knew that there was monsters they were defeating or things that they were doing, but I never really like, okay, this is the plot. This is the myth they're drawing on that sort of stuff. I actually haven't seen Hercules The Legendary Journey since I kind of quote unquote became more knowledgeable in classical myth. I only watched it when I was starting out. I should probably return to that and check it out. Well, I think one of the fun things about that I hope is going to be a fun thing about this book is that there's so much good stuff in it. There is so much good (laughs) stuff in it. And I hope that, you know, as well as sort of reading it and taking away whatever people are taking away from it, I mean, I hope they take away some watching and reading recommendations because, you know, there is a lot of good stuff out there that it's worth spending some time with and unwinding with and, and enjoying as I say, regardless of how much you want to put your critical glasses on for it, you know, you can just enjoy it. Continuing with the theme of monsters in popular media, I want to take a quick break and tell you all about a new podcast from the Parcast Network called Mythical Monsters, which has just launched in time for the Halloween season. As a listener of the History of Ancient Greece podcast, I'm sure y'all are familiar with dragons, sea serpents, giants, or demons. These are just some of the monsters that we have covered that must be slain by any great hero in ancient myths. But these monsters aren't merely adversaries. They are a reflection of the darkest fears that mankind once had. And every Monday, the new Mythical Monsters podcast from the Parcast Network tells the stories of these beasts and then explores what they represent. You'll hear the origin of vampires. Fanged creatures who roam the earth at night, feeding off the blood of humans. You'll hear about Krampus, a half-goat, half-demon who shows up during the Christmas season to punish naughty children. And you'll explore the monster behind every child's worst nightmare, the Boogeyman, a creature often used to scare kids into obeying rules. These are just some of the many monsters covered in the new Mythical Monsters podcast from the Parcast Network. Follow Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit parcast.com slash mythical monsters to listen now. And now let's return back to my conversation with Dr. Liz Gloin. So, now that we slightly talked a little bit about the films and, you know, classical reception, let's shift focus and talk about monsters a little bit, since that is, like, mm-hmm. the centerpiece of your book. It's also popular culture, but you talk about monsters quite a bit in general, either mythical monsters or, like, the idea of monsters. Yeah. So, you start out your book, you know, like, as any good research study does, by defining the topic in your first chapter, and you talk about, so what is a monster or what is a classical monster? So, in your definition, where did we get the word monster and what is a classical monster and how are they delineated? Big question. When I came <laughs> to do this in, in a serious kind of way, I discovered there's a whole field of things called monster studies, which is great. Actually, the discovery of the field of monster studies is another reason I wrote the book, because I realized that in all of the monster study stuff, there was no way to fit in classical monsters. They just didn't have a home. So this is why I wrote the book with what was meant to be the classical monster theory. I'm not sure it quite turned out that way, but, you know, we're edging. We're getting there. We're getting there. So the Greeks and Romans had an idea of monster. They had the word monstrum which we translate as monster, which comes from the verb monstrare, uh, from meneo, which means to warn. So a monster is kind of a warning, it's a portent, it's a sign, it's something that for the Romans and um, particularly the Greeks had to be interpreted. It was kind of a, a way of communication from the gods, it was a way of saying, okay, something really weird has happened, what does this mean? So that kind of interpretative act, you know, is, is lots of it goes on in Rome. 
you know, if you read, you know, Livy is full of portents. And in this year, two-headed snake was born, you know, and random <laughs> things happen. And, you know, we matrons have to sing songs at temples and all, all that kind of stuff. So that, for the Romans, a monstrum is something that is both a monster and also totally out of the ordinary and that needs a response within kind of that state civic religious framework in order to sort of redress whatever's gone wrong in terms of the balance in between gods and humans. In terms of like monster theory, more broadly speaking, monsters are ways of delineating where lines are. They're kind of the creatures who humans bring into existence to point out borderlines. And the reason we feel uncomfortable with them is because they mush categories together. So obviously the classical monsters, very, very clearly, human, category one, animal, category two, monster, half human, half animal, or two kinds of animals, were well, hey. You know, if you think of sort of most of the classical monsters, they are physical hybrids who cross that kind of boundary lines of categories and what something should look like, what body should look like. Monsters disrupt those lines, those those categories. And when you sort of start thinking about it in those terms, it becomes they become about disrupting norms of gender, they become about disrupting norms of behaviour, about norms of sexuality. I mean, if you can disrupt it, a monster will, right? Mm -hmm. Give a monster a fixed category and it won't remain fixed for long. And various reasons why we need as humans monsters to do that kind of work. Partly a policing role, so you know where the line is and what happens to you if you cross it. Partly about defining those categories. Partly also in weird kinds of ways about showing us that those categories aren't actually fixed. So, you know, well, we say this is a fixed thing, but we can imagine something that violates that fixed thing. So what do we do with that? So when you've got sort of like the Roman conception of what monsters do, as they kind of travel through time, monsters change a bit. There becomes a bit of a change in how we understand monsters, how we think with monsters, but it's all very much about external appearance showing monstrosity and what it means to, you know, you can tell a monster by looking at it. And then that becomes sort of a, an important feature for understanding how and why you've you've got the monsters who you have, how you can identify that there are these these boundary crossing things and, and how you're meant to respond to them. It changes when you get to people like Mary Shelley and Frankenstein and when you get to Robert Louis Stevenson and Jekyll and Hyde because suddenly that really strong connection between you can tell a monster from the outside, suddenly you can't. Piggybacking on that for a second. So for the, like the Greeks and Romans, so there was no um, ambiguity. There was no you can be civilized and you can be uncivilized at the same time sort of thing. Or you can cross that threshold that you mentioned, but you can also come back from it. So was there like a hardcore line in their conception of what a monster was? Going back to the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing that you're saying that it didn't come about till later. Yeah, I mean, I think the Greeks and Romans clearly have concepts of what we might now call human monsters. If you're thinking in terms of, for instance, one place that modern culture now uses a lot of language of the monstrous and where a lot of monster studies and sort of modern cultural stuff is thinking about serial killer narratives, for instance. Mm -hmm. But although the Romans and the Greeks can kind of conceptualise of humans who do monstrous things and do awful things, I mean, you know, just think of the Medea, for instance, yeah. they don't totally give up on the humanity. They, they treat them in a different kind of way. Whereas if you're thinking about things like centaurs and things like the Sphinx, 
like Medusa, like the Minotaur, they are very clearly categorised as monsters in a very particular way, whereas humans doing awful things are not the same thing. So it's more about their physical appearance that makes them a monster than it is about their actions? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole sort of key for the monstrum, the ancient monster, is that you can tell them by looking at them, right? That there's a, a really obvious sight thing that means you look at them and go, aha, that is a monster. That dog has three heads. This is not okay. You know, there's a very clear signal to you that you're looking at a monster, that you've kind of crossed that divide in between the human and the sort of moving into the sphere of the divine, the mythical, the mystical, the supernatural, right? There's a difference there. Yeah, and they seem to conceptualise that very differently to humans who do awful things. Before I cut you off, you were talking about Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And that change, yeah. So we get that change uh, historically with Jekyll and Hyde and Frankenstein really is, Mary Shelley is just a complete innovator. She blows the whole concept wide open because you've got Frankenstein who is, you know, supposedly this upright, wonderful man who is actually an appalling father and quite possibly uh, the purchasing things off Grave Robbers and a really, really nasty piece of work, (laughs) even though he's a narrator. And then you have the creature who is never called a monster in the narrative, just as a note. He's not actually Frankenstein's monster. He's Frankenstein's creature, who is very clear that he is created totally innocent. And he's got no desire to be awful or horrible or whatever. And it's the way that other people treat him because of his appearance that make him monstrous and that push him into that monster bracket. He's acculturated into monstrous behaviour because he hasn't got any other choice. So she, as I say, really sort of opens the possibility that just because you look monstrous, you might not actually be monstrous, which is revolutionary at that point. And that development, that break between external monstrosity and internal monstrosity kind of carries on. We get to the modern world and now we are all basically obsessed about monsters we can't see until it's too late. Think about the serial killer. Think about sort of the eco-terror, you know, awful storms, nature turning back on people. I think there's a film coming out soon, which is, I think the trailer was something like, this film will do for alligators what Jaws did for sharks, something along those lines. can't remember what it was called. But, you know, those kinds of sort of nature bites back, quite literally, films. Think about the killer virus that you can't see until it's too late. Obviously, they also tend to turn people into zombies in the kinds of narratives that use those. But, you know, side effect. So you're looking at a society that is focused and fearing very much on the things it can't see until it's too late to see them and respond, which makes it more interesting about why classical monsters, which you can see at half a mile, you know, as I say, those three heads on that dog are a giveaway, (laughs) why they are still being used so much, right? Why have they not sort of been parked or, you know, only to turn up in retellings of myth, right? Or only to be used on special occasions, like the best china. Why are they still turning up in all these new, interesting, active forms? Given we're a culture that is apparently absolutely paranoid about what we can't see. Why do you think that they keep showing up? Why are they still popular? Well, I've kind of got two reasons for that, I think. I think on the one hand... You could argue it's a little bit nostalgic. It's a little bit 
you know, we go back to the Greeks and the Romans, we go back to the time when monsters were monsters and you knew what you were getting, you know, a <laughs> nostalgic look back to the past that sort of makes us feel, yes, yes, we want to have those monsters because we knew where we were with those monsters. So you could see it as sort of a retrograde, like false comfort thing. I'm not so sure that's all that's going on. I think it goes on sometimes, but I don't think that's all that's at work. What I actually think has happened is that classical monsters have been really good at finding new spaces to be monstrous in and responding to those fears about things that we can't understand, things that we can't see, and becoming ways of articulating them so that they've not become irrelevant to our current fears, concerns, worries, but they have found ways of being used and responding to contemporary issues. And people have found them finding space in explorations of those things, which means they can then be used to good purpose, as it were, in contemporary culture. And that kind of goes along with, I think it's in your second chapter. So we, we talked about your first chapter, it talks about what is a monster. And then the second chapter is classical monsters and where to find them, which is a good play on words for Harry Potter. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't actually have any Potter in the book. <laughs> so chapter three talks about monsters in the Harry Harryhausen era. Um, and then chapter four talks about like the hero, the modern peplum and beyond. And then five and six talk about Hercules, legendary journeys and Xena, warrior princess. And then seven and eight talk about Medusa and the Minotaur, which I'm assuming are two of your favorite monsters that you spent an entire chapter on each of them. Well, when the book was originally planned, I was actually going to have only one chapter on film, one chapter on television, and I was going to have four separate case study chapters. Medusa and the Minotaur, and I was going to have one on the sirens and one on the centaurs. But as I started writing... Suddenly that film chapter, that wasn't a chapter anymore. That was two chapters. And then the television chapter wasn't a television chapter. It was definitely two television chapters. And so I sort of thought to myself, I, I only have so many words <laughs> I can write on this thing. You know, I'm contract for only certain many words. And actually, there's so much more here that I didn't realise I wanted to say about film and about television. And that's really important. So I'm going to cut down my case studies. And the reason I cut down to the Minotaur and Medusa was actually quite a practical one. And it's because they are the two, I think, most prevalent classical monsters. There are other classical monsters who, I don't want to say they haven't made the switch, because I think most of them have jumped. Most of them have sort of come across a little bit, but some of them have very quiet lives. Some of them aren't used a great deal. They turn up, but they're not really high on the popular imagination. Medusa and the Minotaur, on the other hand, are really high profile, I think. They're very much part of the, certainly in the Anglo-American framework, they are kind of part of a shared rubric, and certainly within the shared European framework, they are part of that shared cultural heritage, which means that they turn up really so much of the time, and people are expected to get it. They are, I think, the two monsters with sort of the highest amount of gettableness. You know, even if people don't know it immediately, they've got enough of a hazy understanding to kind of get what's going on. Yeah, I, I mentioned earlier, I didn't study classics until college, but I still 
had heard about Medusa, the Minotaur, the Sphinx, which is another popular one, I suppose. Maybe that's number three popular. I don't if you were to rank them. Yeah, I mean, but as I say, they're the ones that people kind of get, right? They're the ones that people get. And that was why I thought, actually, if I've got to pare this down somehow, these are the two that I'm going to focus on. I feel like I see Medusa everywhere and like commercials, ads. It's become like an emblem, so to speak, for a lot of like feminist culture now. And it's showing up on films, TV shows, like posters. I would say that that's probably the most popular classical monster now. And I mean, even through the Renaissance era and forward. You're the expert, but as a layman, I would agree with you. (laughs) Yeah, there are two, at least two really interesting parallel strands in how Medusa is being used and received in contemporary culture. And on the one hand, it is very much Medusa as the woman who oversteps her boundaries and who needs to be policed back into her place. Mm -hmm. So that very misogynistic, very, dare I say it, traditional way of understanding the myth, that is a very sort of powerful way of using Medusa as sort of, you know, the breaking boundaries woman who has to be conquered by the hero, literally by decapitating her. And then on the other side, there is, as you say, certainly not least within sort of feminist culture, but sort of more broadly as well, there's this reclamatory sort of story. There's this actually, no, this is a powerful female figure. We're taking this back. And a sort of a substrate of that is also the acknowledgement, the engagement with Medusa's identity as a rape victim. She is created, so Ovid tells us in the Metamorphoses, which is sort of almost the uh, source for so many classical myths for sort of later writers who are engaging with this material. She becomes monstrous as a punishment, a very victim-blamey punishment that comes from Athena after Poseidon rapes her. And sort of various engagements with that part of Medusa's identity, where that can be taken as instead of a sign of sort of being petrified oneself, becoming the petrifier and sort of taking power from that is actually sort of a very powerful subthread in that reclamatory tradition that's sort of seeking to reclaim Medusa as a symbol of women's power rather than of women's submission. So the two are sort of knocking along next to each other. And it's quite interesting to sort of see how they, well, they sort of don't respond to each other at all. But, you know, the different ground on which they set their stalls, as it were, with the same foundational myth. This is what I mean about the adaptability of the classical monster. You know, Medusa doesn't become invalidated or the meanings associated with her aren't shut down. She doesn't become one thing or the other. She and all the monsters are able to contain multitudes. When did that begin, like the reclaiming of Medusa? Is that a, like a more past decade thing or has that been going on for a very long time and I just didn't notice it until recently? Yeah, I mean, obviously my examples are sort of quite recent. I have a feeling it's been going on for a long time, but I couldn't give you evidence to back that one up. Okay. I think it's one of those things that has certainly become much more prominent, especially since, well, it helps a lot that we've actually started talking about the fact that Ovid talks about rape. That makes it easier for a start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you look at, I don't know if you've come across Lanéphilogique. Lanéphilogique is the big database that sort of stores little abstracts about everything that's been written in the classical scholarship since sort of the 1920s or so. And if you put in rape and Ovid, the first articles to come up are sort of like in the 60s and 70s, and there's nothing, nothing 
until you get, you know, into like the last, probably the last 30 years now, isn't it? Sorry, I was about to say the last 20 years. And then went, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, Lauren. <laughs> Even so, a remarkably short amount of time where there's actually been any discussion of the fact that so many of Ovid's stories actually have got um, sexual violence in them. It just wasn't on the radar. Mm-hmm. I once taught a class where we were dealing with sort of an episode of Ovid and the translation used the word seduction. And a student said, I had to go and look that up. And I don't think that's what's happening in this passage. No, I said, no, it's not. So again, one of the reasons this may seem like quite a recent trend is actually to do with a greater willingness in recent years to acknowledge that kind of content in these stories, which, as I say, then opens up the alternative tellings, the alternative interpretations that become available when you do that. Certainly, it allows them to happen in much greater number and with much greater frequency than they may previously have done. Is there a similar, like, flipping the script with the Minotaur? Like, what's the lesson? Why is the Minotaur myth so popular? What has it been traditionally used to represent? And is it, like, controlling animal instincts and, like, bestiality is bad? The Minotaur has done fantastically well out of Freud. Because when you start thinking about the animal repressed and sort of the repressed within yourself and the bestial and all of that kind of stuff, the minotaur at the centre of the maze and you have to send your rational self to go and kill the beast, except it isn't really a beast because it's always you and the repressed always returns. And anyway, all of that kind of stuff. That obviously is very attractive. Jung, who is another sort of really significant psychoanalytic figure who thought very much in terms of archetypes and sort of accessing universal truths through sort of archetypes, which human consciousness all had shared access to this kind of stuff, obviously universalizing problems there, but we'll let that run. Mm -hmm. Also sort of found the Minotaur very powerful for those kinds of telling, you know, what he saw as sort of universal truth myths about sort of the, the need for the self to transcend and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, even, you know, we can have conversations about how accurate and reasonable do we think that universalizing accounts of the human psyche are, given that these were, well, men coming from particularly privileged parts of Europe. You know, we can have that conversation. But what that has meant is because the Minotaur sort of came into a very influential thought tradition that has then carried on being used by and engaged with by people who have been very creative and have found, I mean, the Jungian archetypal system has sort of been very influential sort of through artists and that kind of sphere. Pablo Picasso used the Minotaur constantly as a figure to come back with and to represent himself and his own identity and all that kind of stuff and to sort of engage with that through his artistic practice. So because of sort of all of that, the Minotaur sort of, again, has a prominence as a figure of self-exploration, of self-conquest, which is, again, a very common strand of exploring what he's about. It fits in very comfortably with narratives around Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, which is, again, problematic Mm because Campbell's narratives tend to sort of flatten everything out. They tend to ignore everything apart from the bit that fit Campbell's stories, But of course, the Campbell's hero's journey has then gone on to be hugely influential for people who sort of do things for Hollywood, right? So all of the kinds of feeds-ins here sort of mean that the Minotaur myth and that labyrinth and that quest for the hero to sort of become his true self, for want of a better way of putting it, have sort of gained a lot of cultural narrative power that it now carries with it, which keep it very prominent in the minds of people thinking about what they're going to do. 
I find it fascinating. That's one of the most popular characters, but not just for being known as a monster, but because of the connection with like the labyrinth. It's the monster, but it's also the monster and the labyrinth. Yeah, the place is so closely tied to the monster in the case of the Minotaur. And I actually have a chapter on the way that the labyrinth and the Minotaur work in young British young adult fiction as a way of forming identity that's going to be coming out in a volume at some stage in the next year or so. Precisely looking at how come the labyrinth and the Minotaur are so closely related and what is going on when we use that space. And again, I come back to, you know, this connection of the psychoanalytic tradition. You know, you kind of need to have the Minotaur in order to have this battle with the self and this discovery and this, you know, finding the centre of the maze and all of those kinds of narrative stuff. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting that place and space have become so closely tied in that particular instance, in a way that I don't think is true about the monsters, actually. The Minotaur is quite unique in that sense, that it really is about location in some really interesting ways as well. We'll take Medusa and the Minotaur, for example. So if you say Medusa, first thing that comes to my head is snaky hair, a gaze. When you say Minotaur, it's immediate the labyrinth. And then second thing is its appearance. I guess it's kind of similar with the Sphinx too, because when I think of the Sphinx, I immediately think of riddles where it sits, eating passerbys, and then ancient Egypt. And it's less about its physical appearance as a monster. But you also have an entire chapter about that sort of stuff. We already mentioned this, monsters and where to find them. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that kind of idea about place and stuff is really important for monsters because, you know, again, this is about edges. This is about monsters as things that exist in kind of those weird side places and, and actually understanding that and what it means when you encounter a monster is, I think, really important. I find it fascinating a lot of the myths, you know, with, say, the Hercules one, the legendary journey will go with the labors of Hercules involved defeating creatures, monsters that were just out in the open. Whereas you say, like with the Odyssey, a lot of them were kind of on the edge. Yeah. And I think sort of one of the really interesting things about Greek myth and about Roman myth and about just the ancient cultures generally is they have a very porous understanding about the boundary between the human and the supernatural. They have a very flexible understanding that you might be wandering around your regular business and then bang, you're Acteon, you've wandered into Diana's <laughs> Grove, you've been turned into a deer and you're being taught to talk your own dogs, right? And it was just a regular Tuesday. There's no warning for Acteon when he crosses that boundary. He literally stumbles into this situation. And that kind of sense of the fluidity of space, of place, that, you know, you could be wandering around. I mean, Oedipus in the myth meets the Sphinx on the road to Thebes. Mm-hmm. He's not going to have to find it in some weird place. It, it's just there. It's just like hanging around. It just showed up. Exactly. Showed up, popped his butt. It's fine. <laughs> Monsters of the ancient Greeks really occupy exactly the same space as humans do. And you can just like run into one with no warning. And that is very different to its later conceptions of monsters, which kind of are very much, well, the monsters are over there. (laughs) That is the monster zone. That is where you go to find them. And they're much more clearly spatialized, localized. There is a place for them to be. Whereas the Greeks and the Romans are much more, they are all over the place. And you don't know when you're going to run into one. 
When did that concept change? Did it come about after the Greeks and Romans or with later work of Pliny or like Strabo, the geographers? Did it come about later? Is it a later tradition or is it post-Roman tradition? I think roots of it, technically, uh, you could argue that they start coming out in Herodotus with Herodotus' amazing gold-eating ants. <laughs> yeah. I think in the ancient world, it's all opportunity monsters. It doesn't matter where you are, there could be a monster. It doesn't matter whether you're in the centre, whether you're at the edge, they're everywhere. But I think that there is kind of a slow pushing out to the edges that sort of happens over time. But even when we're thinking about sort of monsters that we encounter in the urban environments, for want of a better example, let's take vampires, you're looking at particular kinds of houses. Think about the haunted house. You know, we sort of know what a haunted house is supposed to look like. And indeed, one of the horrors about um, the serial killer motif in sort of monster theory is that you precisely don't know. You can't tell by looking at the outside of a serial killer's house that it's a serial killer's house. Again, that shift to the unidentifiable place of fright, that, again, is something that's sort of changed over time. But I really do think the ancient Greeks and Romans have got a completely different way of conceptualising how you relate to space and the supernatural that fundamentally makes their way of thinking about monsters and how you run into them utterly different to the way that we think about it. Did the Roman and, I guess, Greek way of seeing these monsters going to the boundary, so to speak, do you think that might have came along with an us versus them mentality? Like, the more they're going east, the more they go north, the more they go south. These people are different from us, so our monsters must be out there as well. It's very tempting to think like that. And when you start getting into the issues of cartography that turn up in the medieval period, that definitely becomes part of the narrative even more so when you get into sort of colonial style thinking, because it's so much easier to say, ah, oh, those people over there, they are not in fact a people, they are monsters, and therefore we must civilize them or conquer them. And that makes it fine to steal all their resources. So that kind of European colonialist mindset, obviously, a monstering narrative is extremely convenient, because you're not actually subjugating a culture of equal value, you're taming monsters, and that's fine, honest. But I think that's all developmental. It's all building on this push to the edge. And I think there's sort of a big difference between seeing the possibility of monsters everywhere to saying that they are only in these dangerous spaces, that they only exist outside the realms of civilization, which is kind of the shift, I think, that happens. So certainly sort of by the medieval kind of period, you're thinking a little bit in terms of, well, there may be these fantastical beasts out there but they're not around our town. You can walk through the field safely. You're not going to randomly run into a mystical beast, which, of course, is very much not the way that the Greeks and the Romans talk about it. So you know how we think of monsters like, oh, they're living in our basement or they're under the bed or they're in the closet. Did the Romans and the Greeks have any perception of monsters like that in the ancient times? Or is that just a modern phenomenon that we use to scare our kids? It's not a modern phenomenon. It's not a modern phenomenon. There are kind of bogey monsters out there that seem to be existing to scare kids with who are supposed to come and eat children, that kind of stuff. Like the Ampusa. Yes, exactly, yeah. So they, they're probably the closest that you get, totally false disciplinary boundaries, but they come a little bit more under folklore in that they appear in records, as it were, of an oral tradition but they don't necessarily have stories told about them in the same way as some of the others do. But 
those kinds of ideas of here are the monsters that we tell children about to keep children behaving. <laughs> We've definitely got that kind of evidence in the sources. So nobody be like, if you don't behave, the Minotaur is going to show up under your bed sort of thing? Or <laughs> Well, we haven't got any evidence for that. I'm fairly willing to bet that obviously there will have been a parent or a nurse or some other caregiver who will have pulled that one at some stage. Because <laughs> but we don't have any evidence of that kind of stuff being used in that kind of way, you know. So have you previously taught any classes on what you're writing, like uh, Monsters, Popular Culture? Have you taught any reception classes in general? Are you going to incorporate that into your teaching? I've kind of taught them slightly separately. We have a third year course, so colleges for three years with us. We've got a third year course, which we've just run for the first time the year just finished, which is titled Contemporary Approaches to Latin Literature. And one of the mini modules, mini units in, in that course is looking at classical literature, Latin literature through monster theory, which was really cool, brought up some really interesting things. And then the sort of last mini unit is a reception unit. So thinking about the reception of Roman film and that kind of stuff. And some students did do their final term paper combining reception theory and monster stuff and sort of doing some analysis on that kind of intersection, which was quite fun. Very cool. So it's not sort of specifically on contemporary culture and monsters, but it's bringing in different parts of it to sort of get, well, hopefully let my students sort of see some of the places they can be doing cutting edge, exciting thinking about this kind of stuff, which is really awesome, actually. It's always fascinating if you can incorporate your research into your classroom or if you were inspired from a class to go into your research when I hear people talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. What was really fun for me was working out what else I could do with monster theory, because obviously I had it for this particular project and it was really great to say, okay, so what can I do if I'm thinking about Latin literature? Where can I go with this? What does this help me understand, help me think about? And I've got some beginning ideas that I might go and play with at some other stage. But, uh, you know, as I'm sure all your interviewees say this, and I've got far too many other things I've got to do first. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'll get there eventually. It's on the to-do list. Exactly. <laughs> so it comes out in October, right? Yeah. What date does it come out? October 31st. Oh, Halloween. That makes sense. Perfect sense. Yeah, exactly. How good is that? It was meant to be November the 14th, and then they moved it, and I was so excited. All right, awesome. Is there going to be an ebook version as well, in case people are into that? There is an ebook version which you can already pre order, I think, from the Bloomsbury page. And there is the very, very expensive hardback version, and then there is the rather more reasonably priced paperback version. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, definitely check out her book. I enjoyed reading it. It was interesting and it was it was like written very smoothly as well. So check that out and get it on Halloween. Mm-hmm.